Chapter 3. Just One Thing. The opening quote for this chapter is a dialogue between Jack Palance's character Curly and Billy Crystal's character Mitch from a movie called City Slickers. Curly says, Do you know what the secret of life is? Mitch replies, No, what? Curly raises up his right hand, extending his index finger, says this. Mitch goes, Your finger? Curly replies, One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. Mitch replies, that's great, but what's the one thing? Curly says, that's what you got to figure out. By the age of 17, I had been trained to find fault with every point of view, and now I had two of them, where neither brought any solace to my life. Normally, in the face of such conflict, one might turn to the religion for peace of mind but I had been raised without a particular faith. What I did have were insights from various traditions that described my experience of silence on the bus, but none could tell me how to get there, or at least I wasn't able to find my way from what I'd read, and badly wanting to return was not content with simply another's description of it. I wanted my own path to silence, hoping that doing so would provide the missing perspective to my two conflicting points of view of interior and exterior. One year later, while attending a lecture on Transcendental Meditation, I am listening to someone talk about the very thing I longed for. As he gave his introductory talk, I could hardly contain my enthusiasm at the prospect of having found a system of knowledge that offered an understanding of silence, higher states of consciousness, and a practice of transcending, the description of which sounded just like my experience on the bus. Without a second thought, I signed up for instruction. On November 17, 1971, I returned to the Berkeley TM Center, bringing with me the flowers, fruit, and new white cotton handkerchief that were required for my ceremony of initiation. Not knowing what to expect, I'm caught completely off guard by the ceremony and then the transcending process, as a silence normally foreign to my life pours into my mind once again. Even as I write this, I remember the wonderful sensation of sinking, floating, and peacefulness amidst the few remaining thoughts that proclaimed, all I want to do for the rest of my life is to be a teacher of this. Leaving the center that afternoon, I felt excited, knowing that it was towards this goal my life was now set. I was going to become a TM teacher. When I first learned to meditate, I had recently turned 18, was a freshman in college, and was now subject to the military draft. At the time, I lived with my family in Newark, California, and each morning after meditating, I would drive to San Jose State University, where the pressures of academic life were only exacerbated by the possibility of being drafted into the Vietnam War. On Sundays, I attended Quaker meetings, and while the group sat in silent prayer, I would do my TM practice. About a year later, I was accepted into the Quaker Society of Friends. Even though I'd filed for conscience objector status on my selective service application when I turned 16, there was no guarantee that I wouldn't need to defend my claim of nonviolence. I was still subject to the draft lottery system, which made being drafted a real gamble, and I didn't like the odds. Often I would wonder what my options might be if my number was up and my claim denied. I could leave the country, participate in non-military support, a kind of conscripted Peace Corp activity, or there was always jail. But no matter what I did to orchestrate plans to escape the prospect of being drafted, I was unable to feel safe. At the time, 
I had no way of knowing this was because I continued to organize my life into logical arguments that were devoid of feeling. And since that practice had never led me to feel safe in the past, every attempt only served to perpetuate a state of duress from which I could not escape. So instead of retaining the peace and silence that I found through my meditation practice each day, my mind would engage in dialogues which never achieved any resolution. One moment I'd be thinking about the day's draft lottery number, how close it was to my birth date, and the implications of being drafted. Next, my thoughts would be about a paper I needed to write, a book I had to read, a girl I wanted to meet, or a conversation that had not gone well. Back and forth, my mind would go from past to future, remembering what I, he, or she had said or done, then imagining what I would later say or do, always playing both sides of an imaginary conversation, complete with emotional posturing, declarations, and adamant conclusions. But every time I ran a scenario through to its reasonable conclusion, the process began all over again as if it had never happened. It didn't seem to matter where I started or ended up. I was destined to repeat the process again and again because my mind had no place to rest. For some reason, meditation was unable to relieve me of this tendency. I mention this because regardless of the peace I experienced during my practice, as soon as I started the drive to school, the background dialogue would resume until I got a headache. In fact, I got a headache every day. Then, when I returned home in the afternoon, I would retreat to the sanctuary of my bedroom, close the door, and do my evening meditation. It was in those moments of feeling exhausted and spent that I would reflect on what a mess my life was. I was so physically and mentally stressed that my only conclusion was that I didn't know how to do life right. I thought to myself, if I could do just one thing right, maybe the rest of my life would get organized around that one thing done well. Sitting there in the growing darkness as the silence washed over me once again, bringing relief to my body and mind, I decided that my one thing would be to meditate religiously. So each day, Wherever I found myself at the time, I would do my practice no matter what. Sometimes it was at home in my room, other times in the student union at San Jose State, and still others in my car at the parking garage near campus. Regardless of where I was, when it was time to meditate, I did. Over time, I found that not only did my headaches begin to subside, but something else began to happen as well. I first noticed it during the drive home from school when my mind was engaged in its usual stream of mental dialogue. But on this particular day, the mental activity came to a complete standstill, even as I continued to navigate traffic. In fact, my mind was so quiet that I don't remember how much time went by before the internal chatter resumed. What I did notice was a silent gap in my thinking process, even though at first I didn't recognize it for what it was. For some reason, I was unable to sustain an awareness of the stillness while I was in it, as if some invisible line had been crossed that was only discernible after returning from it. But it was in this now you see me, now you don't matter that silence began to show up between thoughts outside my meditation practice. Five years later, it's the 20th of October, 1976. I'm on a flight back to the United States with more than 100 graduates of a six-month TM teacher training program. Sitting in the crowded plane, I am eager to return home to teach meditation for the rest of my life. Also, I am filled with the quiet joy that comes from fulfilling a long-forgotten desire to not become one of those people sitting in their cars waiting for the light to change. Because even though the memory of that day soon faded into the background of my life, its effect lived on in the hidden belief that I must not fall prey to the fate of others. As it happens, I was about to learn that what one resists persists, 
And with the first person I teach to meditate, I realize that life often has other plans. Her name is Cindy, and she is an executive secretary for the owner of New Homes Magazine in Santa Clara, California. One day, Cindy calls to say her boss has invited me to his office for a private presentation on TM. When I arrive, she brings me to his well-appointed office, makes the usual introductions, and offers me something to drink before leaving the room and closing the door behind her. Tom, her boss, is in his early 30s, of stocky bill with a winning smile and pearly white teeth, which he proudly taps on, telling me they're porcelain veneers. He engages me in some small talk about how Cindy kept going on and on about me, which motivated him to check me out. In hearing him say this, it occurs to me that Tom might not be so interested in learning to meditate, but I give him the lecture just the same. After I'm done, Tom makes more small talk until he finally confesses that he's not so interested in learning to meditate, but he is looking for someone to take over his business. He wonders out loud if I might be interested in the job. While attempting to hide the fact that I'm stunned by his unexpected offer, I wonder if I could do the job. Here I'm talking with a self-made millionaire who's offering to train me to take over his business of real estate advertising, a career I'd never wanted nor knew existed. At the mere implication of what this could mean, I watch my dream of teaching meditation evaporate as Tom talks compensation and perks, gives me a tour of his operation, and shows me his new baby blue 450 SLC Mercedes-Benz. Then he invites me to join him for lunch to continue our talk. I accept. And as I climb into his car, a small voice in my head reminds me that I never wanted anything to do with the world of business. But for some reason, I ignore it. And over the next couple of days, we come to an agreement to work together. Accepting my starting position as sales manager, I travel with Tom to meet customers and learn the ropes of his business. I have my own office and a mind-boggling salary compared with what I earned as a TM teacher. After about five weeks, he fulfills my first condition of employment by giving me vacation time for my wedding and the next two months off to attend an advanced meditation course that held the promise of deepening my experience of silence. It was supposed to be a two-month retreat, but again, life had other plans and four months would pass before I returned to my job, only to find it was no longer mine. The top salesman of the competing real estate magazine had replaced me while I was away. Feeling betrayed by Tom in particular and the universe in general, I took a job selling construction materials, all the while loathing myself for having lost such a great job. Not only did my current one require that I show up at the lumber yard by 7 a.m., which got into my morning meditation, but I became consumed by the futility of doing something that has nothing to do with what life is about. Another four months would go by before I meet John, a TM practitioner who's making great money selling property at Tahoe Donner. He tells me I'd be a natural at the job and that all I needed was a real estate license and he would get me hired. Motivated to find a way out of my current situation, I attend night classes to secure my license. After I complete my studies and pass the exam, John introduces me to a sales manager. As promised, I'm hired, and the next thing I know, John is training me and feeding me sales leads. The work is okay, and my time is my own. During the week, I work out of the sales office near Alameda, and on the weekends, I drive to Tahoe Donner to show properties. And yet, I'm still unable to buy into this whole work thing. It's not that I'm lazy. In fact, I have a solid work ethic. But for some reason, the prospect of spending the majority of my day doing something that had nothing to do with what life was about was really depressing. It wasn't that I actually knew what life was about. I just knew this wasn't it. As fate would have it, Tahoe Donner lost their sewer permits to another housing project, and since you can't build houses without sewer lines, 
selling lots became next to impossible. While driving home from Tahoe Donner for the last time, I wonder how I'm going to make ends meet. But then I remember a TM teacher named Ted who owned a firm in the employment industry and worked as a recruiter or something. When I get home, I call him, explain what has happened, and ask his help in finding a job. After listening quietly, he says that he doesn't find jobs for people, but people for jobs, to which I reply, what? Realizing that I have failed to grasp the distinction, he invites me to breakfast to tell me about it.